All right, welcome to uh, an episode of uh, the Front Row Podcast. I'm Coach Mark Godfrey. I've got an amazing, wonderful, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun today uh, for both of us, but I've got an amazing guest, uh, Dr. David Fagenbaum. And uh, even on the uh, ride over, uh, full disclosure to everybody, um, David will soon be my brother-in-law, right. so I'm excited about that as well. I, I will marry uh, his sister soon. But we were talking and, you know, the question came up, uh, do most people or do you prefer, you know, physician, immunologist, scientist, uh, you know, kind of where does that fall? And then once you answer that, I'm going to I'm going to give the audience a little bit more about you. But but where, where does that fall for you? Sure. I, I refer to myself as a physician scientist, but anything you just said would be right. <laughs> <laughs> Former college football player. That's right. Brother in law. But, uh, you know, David Fagenbaum, uh, he's got an amazing story uh, really about his life, and he's involved in some amazing work uh, that, uh, you know, we all do interesting and fun and amazing things in our lives. But I've told many people, Dave, you know, what you do and, you know, you're saving lives and, and not just kind of saving, like actually really truthfully saving lives, including your own. And uh, David has done an amazing job. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll try to dive in. But he's written an amazing book uh, called Chasing My Cure. And uh, this is a phenomenal book that has also led to uh, Dave uh, signing uh, the rights to a movie deal coming up with uh, Wendy Feinerman, who was the producer of Forrest Gump. And so we're really excited about that. But you know, uh, just real quickly, I, I want you to kind of tell the story uh, about your own life. Uh, grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, great high school player, recruited to play college football, college quarterback at Georgetown. And then from there, David, kind of take us through your journey just a little bit and kind of how you got from there kind of to where you kind of are now. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, just like you, I, I dreamed of playing college sports. For me, it was I wanted to be a college quarterback somewhere, and, and that's all I could think about um, as a kid and uh, had the opportunity to go to Georgetown. You know, we're not known for our football, but uh, <laughs> but I did achieve my dream technically of playing Division One quarterback, uh, though we certainly are, you know, we're not Alabama. But um, so, you know, I got there and I was so excited to be on campus and to, and to you know, have achieved this dream. And then my life turned upside down, Mark, because just two weeks after I got to Georgetown my freshman year, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And so all of a sudden I went from, you know, this, you know, fired up, you know, start about to start my college football career, um, football player to, to being, you know, the son of, of someone who's got cancer and saying, you know what? as long as I'm on this planet, I want to put every moment I've got left to help and to find treatments for people like my mom. Mm. And for me, it was like a, a, a switch just flipped. And it was like, I'm, I'm all in on going into medicine. I still played at Georgetown all four years, but I wasn't mentally, you know, locked in the way that, you know, you, you got to be to be mm -hmm. a great, mm -hmm. a great college athlete. Um, so decided I wanted to, to dedicate my life to searching for cures and um, went to Oxford for grad school, went to Penn for medical school. And in my third year of med school, I was sort of at the pinnacle. I mean, I was had just delivered my first baby into the world um, when I was on the OBGYN rotation. And uh, just a few weeks later, I just started feeling horrible. Um, I felt more tired than I'd ever felt mm -hmm. before. Noticed these enlarged lymph nodes in my neck. I was having night sweats. I just noticing fluid around my ankles. It was just crazy. And uh, over the course of just a few weeks, I went from those early symptoms to um, walking down the hall in the hospital that I was working at to the emergency department and they ran blood tests. My doctor came in the room and said, David, 
your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart and your lungs are shutting down. We have mm. to hospitalize you right away. Mm. I mean, I had just been taking care of patients, mm. but I, I knew something was wrong. And so I got transferred to the ICU. Um, I gained 70 pounds of fluid because my mm. liver and my kidneys weren't working. I had a retinal hemorrhage that made, made me temporarily blind in my left eye. Um, was basically in and out of consciousness for weeks with no diagnosis. And um, as you know, um, my sister Gina, um, who you know obviously very well, it's your, your new fiance, she and my other sister Lisa and my dad, they never left my side. Mm. I mean, they were with me through everything. Mm. Um, but at, at one point, I was so sick that we said goodbye to, mm. to, to one mm. another. And so mm. it was some, some really low times. I had my last rights read to me. Mm. Um, and that's all without even having a diagnosis. Mm. So here you are, you're you're a guy that's played college football. I've seen pictures, I I didn't know you back then, but you know, massively in shape, you know, great body, strong, fit, athletic, Uh, go to Oxford and you're at Penn and uh, boom, this hits you. Out of nowhere. And it's interesting over the last few years, I've gotten to know you very well and uh, I've heard you speak a number of times, but I've never really heard you talk about, and I'm often wondering, because I think human nature, there's a part of us that says, you know, why me? Yeah. Okay, here I am. I'm young. I'm vibrant. I'm in shape. Uh, you were, uh, uh, you've got this beautiful girl that, that you were dating. Yeah. That's a whole other story off and on. <laughs> and you ended up marrying Caitlin, who's beautiful and wonderful. Right. But there, was there ever a point where you're by yourself in the hospital, doctors are saying, Really, there's nothing else we can do yep. where you just kind of, di- it's the woe is me, which I think human nature, there's yeah, nothing absolutely. wrong with that, that you just say, man, whoa, whoa, you know. Yeah, you know, for me, it was, I guess, a little bit less why me. And part of it is because, you know, watching my mom's diagnosis with mm-hmm. cancer, I mean, she was a saint, Mark. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, I know mm-hmm. you hear me and Gina talk about her a lot, but she was just like the best human ever. And watching her get sick and then pass, for me, it was sort of like, I guess if, if my mom, who was like perfect in every way, could get sick, sort of anyone could. So it was less why me. And also in medical school, you encounter a lot of people who get sick and, and, it, and it, there's never a rhyme or a reason, right? And so um, it was less why me and more the, the low point that I think you were sort of imagining was me being like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I sort of hit my, my, last, my last leg and I was just like, I, I gotta give up, I'm, I'm gonna give up. And mm-hmm. it was because, I had so much pain all over my body because all the fluid that was everywhere. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I remember very vividly a point where the pain, every breath I took was like basically getting stabbed in, in my lungs. And um, when the pain's that bad, you basically just slow down your breathing and then you pass. I mean, it's that bad. And um, I remember being in the position where I wanted to just give up. And I remember hearing Gina and Lisa saying, just breathe, Dave, just keep breathing. Mm-hmm. And and they said it at the exact time I needed to hear it. I mm. mean, I was literally there mm. and, and I said, all right, I'm going to keep, it hurts with everything. I mean, it's the more, most painful thing in the world to just to take a breath, but I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, I never, never knew in that moment that 13 years later, you and me are going to be sitting mm-hmm. here on a podcast talking. I thought mm-hmm. I was going to keep breathing for another day, right? right. Got to fight for one more day, but, but here we are 13 years later. How many times, Dave, do you think, and you, you know this or not that you think, but do you know that you, you kind of, you're at that point, doctors have said, okay, there's really nothing more we can do. Yep. But then you improve, you get better, mm-hmm. but then you've had some relapses where you go back. And so how many of those where it's like, and again, so, you know, I re- kind of relate everything to sports you know, as, yep. a, as an old coach. Sometimes even when you're down in a game, you, you fight your way back and you climb over the yeah. hill 
and then all of a sudden you're down 20 yep. again and then we can climb back and, and there's only so many times you know you can sometimes do that before you yep. just say you know what we i can't get over the mountain i just totally. can't get over the top and so how many times for you were there those moments where you kind of were like man this is i'm exhausted and i and i've i've fought it i've gotten better but now i'm backwards again yep yeah, so for me, you know, there were five, there have been five times over the course of a three-year period where I was on the on the brink, um, where I, you know, the doctor said this is it, and you know, the, for the last four of them, each of them had been after I'd gotten better at some point, and so to your point, there was so much frustration. But you know, I think this also gets back to to the sports analogy you mentioned is that the only reason I'm here is because during those tough times, I had Caitlin, I had my dad, I had my sisters by my side, and they were giving me a vision for the future. You know, I, it's like, I got to keep fighting for them because maybe one day I can get married to Caitlin and maybe we can have a family one day. Maybe I can keep developing treatments and, and help people like my mom. And so it was sort of like, when you think about the sports analogies, you know, the moment you've lost hope, the moment you're like, we can't beat these guys, you're done. Yeah. But but while you're fighting back, if you're like, there's a chance, you know, like we might be down, you know, 42, but uh, <laughs> it might be the fourth quarter, but, uh, you know, maybe we, you're, we got a chance. And I think my family kept giving me that feeling that there's a chance. And so it just helped me keep fighting. You know, uh, you mentioned your father, who, who I've gotten to know and I, and I really uh, admire. But um, your dad was an orthopedic surgeon uh, yeah. in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, we, we never overlapped. He, he spent a lot of time with the football team on the sidelines with NC State football. Yeah. I became the basketball coach at NC State, but he had just retired. So we, we never really had that opportunity to work together. But... I've heard you mention many times about even your dad as well, you know, being there for you and sitting there beside the bed and just kind of, you know, so many nights, you know, not leaving your side and and um, talk about that a little bit and how, how how much that meant to have your father and then you had lost your mother. Yep. So now here's your dad and um, you know he he kind of he was there. It sounds like to me that he really was there. He was. He, I mean, he, he did not leave my side and uh, it, it, it meant the world. I mean, it, it really meant everything. I was so sick um, because all of my organs were shutting down. I couldn't think straight at all. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. I was so confused. And um, frankly, the doctors didn't know what was going on for a long time either. And so having my dad there knowing that he was thinking about what was going on. He was asking the right questions. That gave me some some real mm -hmm. peace. Um, and, and actually, it just reminds me. So, I spent almost six months hospitalized mm. with this thing. And you know, I mean, it, it was horrible over that period of time. But right as I started to turn the corner, I got a bunch of chemotherapy. It kicked in. It saved my life. But so the night before I'm about to be discharged from the hospital, my, my nurse comes in the room and says, hey, "David, you must be so excited. You know, you've been hospitalized. And you're you're heading out tomorrow." I said, "Yeah." I've been in the hospital for six months. I cannot wait to get out. My dad goes, what is this? I've been in the hospital. We've been in the hospital. And you know my dad. And he's like, what is this? So and the truth is, he, he was right. He had yeah. literally been sleeping in the hospital on those pullout couches, you know, every night for six months. And um, and he was by my side the whole time. That's amazing. So when the doctors, um, how quickly after you became ill, were you told or did you hear the words Castleman's disease? Because yeah. I've never heard of Castleman's disease until yeah. I met you. So totally. you're you're there, you're struggling, you're in the hospital, you're 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 fighting, and 
now you're introduced to this thing called Castleman's. Were you yeah. aware of what that was prior or did you, or were you not? I wasn't. And it was 11 weeks since I'd already finished three years of medical school and I still had never heard of the thing right. before. Right. I mean, that's how rare it is. Right. And, and what the reality is, is there's about 5,000 patients diagnosed a year. So it's actually close to as common as ALS, mm. but there's far less awareness. And there's a lot of these rare diseases that, that just haven't gotten any awareness. So Castleman's was one of them. Um, mm. But uh, I'd never heard of it. And uh, 11 weeks in, I finally got the diagnosis. And we were like so excited to have a diagnosis. Like, yeah, we got an answer. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna beat this thing, you know? Um, and then of course, uh, we started looking online to understand more about this thing. And we're like, oh shit, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we got an answer, yeah, but like, trouble. it's not the answer we wanted, right. this is not um, good. you know, uh, and, and it was because we had never heard of it before. They were like, sounds great. <laughs> it's not lymphoma, but oh shit. Um, so we, uh, you know, we got the diagnosis, um, started trying to figure out what to do for treatment. And we just really quickly learned that there was very, very little in terms of options. Prior to you learning that and, and okay, here now, now we know what it is. Um, at that time, the survival rate for those that had uh, come down with Castleman's disease would have been really bad. Really so, bad. so I read a Wikipedia page okay. um, right around the time of the diagnosis, and it was old data. It was about ten years old, but it was it, it, it said in on this Wikipedia page that um, it was something like eighty percent of patients die within three years of diagnosis, mm. and. Uh, I'm 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I knew it was a bad disease because it had been kicking my ass for 11 mm -hmm. weeks. I knew, I knew whatever I was fighting mm -hmm. was bad, but mm -hmm. like 80% dying within just a few mm -hmm. years, I'm 25 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to develop these cures in memory of my mom. I want to get married. I want to have a family. Um, so, you know, it sort of hit me right between the eyes. Um, thankfully, those statistics have improved since then. And of course, over the last 10 years with our work, we've really, really mm -hmm. improved those statistics. But, but man, that was frightening. I'm gonna jump ahead and then we can jump back but because it's on my mind. Uh, and I went to a gala with you in Philadelphia yep. and, and for Castleman's. And I remember, uh, I can't remember how old the, the young girl, maybe she was 12 or 13, but uh, yeah. some girl that uh, that you had helped. And uh, you know, I, I can imagine their family, when, and I don't know how old she exactly was, she was probably very young, but um, when you learn that, hey, I've got Castleman's. It, it's like, you know, and, and you know, obviously um, your sister Gina, my, fiance, you know, lost a, uh, her spouse to ALS. Right. And sometimes when you hear that, you're hearing a death sentence. Yep. You know, as much as you want to believe that, hey, I can beat this, the truth of the matter yep. is probably not. Yep. And, uh, but it was amazing at the gala to watch this young girl and her family. And I'm sure you have a lot of stories so far where you've, where there have been, whether it's young people or middle age or older, where, um, they have felt there's nothing left for us to try and yep. it's over yet because of your work. And I know I'm jumping way ahead here, mm -hmm. but uh, that's got to be just an amazing, um, you know, thing to be a part of. Like, you know, we went basket. you know, I was coaching. We went a basketball game. I feel all excited, yeah. you know, yeah. but the reality is it's a basketball game. Now here you are, your, your wins are different. There, it's a different win than, winning a football game. And so how, how, t talk to me about that a little bit and, the, and what that's meant to you to watch some of these people. And I, I know I jumped way ahead, but help yeah. me there. It, it's meant everything. I mean, Mark, I, I can't put into words. Mm -hmm. This past Thursday, um, we had a Castleman disease patient in Philadelphia. Um, she's 17 years old mm -hmm. and she spent a year in the hospital um, from the time she was 12 to 13 on chemotherapy nearly the entire year. Mm -hmm. Even chemotherapy couldn't get this damn mm -hmm. disease under control. And um, 
at the last minute, her doctor had been calling me, you know, David, are there any, anything we can try? And at the last minute, um, doctor called me at like 9 p.m. one night and was like, this is it for this girl, Kyla. Um, you got anything for me? And I said, well, two weeks ago in the lab, we discovered, we thought this drug did something that might be relevant for Kyla. I mean, why don't you give it a try? It's never been used in humans mm -hmm. for this disease. It's been used, it's approved for a form of blood cancer. It's never been used for Castleman's. But like, if you're telling me this is it, see if you can give it a try, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and she gave it a try and Kyla sitting down next to me this past mm. Thursday with her family around her and mm. we are talking about, she's gonna go to nursing school mm. and she's gonna, and everything's telling us that she could live a full life on this drug. And it's like, I mean, I cannot put into words mm. what that's like, Mark. Mm. I mean, I, I'm thinking about that phone call and it's like, and of course the work had to be done to figure out that drug, mm. but then the moment where it's like, what's the drug that you're mm. gonna say? Mm. and. And you know, thankfully, we picked something that could save her life. And now that drug, actually, we give to a lot of other Castleman's yeah. patients. And we just got a, a grant yeah. to study it in even yeah. more. Yeah, it's amazing. So, if uh, if anybody that's listening has a chance to read uh, Dave's book called "Chasing My Cure," you know, what one thing that's uh, very interesting and probably unique—well, it's unique to me—I've never heard of anybody do anything like this until you. But so you're you're there in the hospital. You now know you have Castleman's. Um, you're kind of in and out, you're getting better, you've gotten worse, you know, you've kind of, you've kind of gone back and forth. But at some point, you decide, and help me if I screw this up, because I might, but it basically, I'm going to find a cure for my own fatal disease that I have, correct? It's, it's close to that. Okay. It's, it's shit. This thing, it's, <laughs> it's shit. This thing's going to kill me. And, uh, I'm going to go out swinging. I mean, right. it wasn't I'm going to find a cure. It's okay. I'm going to go out swinging on this guy with everything I got. Okay. Um, and, and I'm probably not going to connect, but I'm going to go out swinging. And, uh, and it was the realization. And it, the moment was that I had failed to respond to the only mm -hmm. drug in development. So there's mm -hmm. one drug. And the whole community over the last 60 years, the disease mm -hmm. has been known and studied one drug. They gave me that drug, and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so that was an, a frightening, terrifying, sobering moment. But that was moments after that when my doctor was like, look, this is it. We don't have anything else. Like mm -hmm. you just didn't respond to the only thing we got. Mm. There's no cavalry coming. There's mm. nothing else coming down mm. the road. And Caitlin, Gina, Lisa, and my dad uh, were sitting in the room with me and we just all were just bawling. I mean, mm. just the full yeah. snot cry. Right. I mean, everything, right? Cause this was our, this is the world's expert yeah. saying there's nothing. And he said, we're going to try chemo, but it's going to stop working after a certain point. This is mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's when I turned to, to, to my dad, sisters and Caitlin, I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that is to trying to find a drug for this disease. And it wasn't that I'm going to find it as I'm going to try to find it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so what do you do if, if you got horrible disease and there's no research that's been done um, and you don't have, basically it costs about a billion dollars to develop a new drug from scratch and it takes over 10 years if you want to create a new drug. I didn't have a billion dollars. I didn't have 10 years, okay? So, well, what do you do then? And so for me, it's like, shit, the only thing I could possibly do is see if there's an existing drug that's already approved for something else and see if maybe it could work for me, mm -hmm. which maybe seems like the simplest idea or maybe it seems like the craziest idea, but for me, it was the only idea, right? It's like, if I want to survive, I got to find something. What and else? the only thing I can find is the things right. that are on the shelf. Right. And so that became um, how I saved my own life. And now how I am just, as you know, I am on fire just trying to find as many drugs that are in the pharmacy we can use in new ways as possible. 
So when you're starting to look, and, and again, you're, you're, I want to remind those that are listening, we're talking about you know, a degree from Georgetown, Oxford, Penn. Uh, we also have a, a degree from Wharton School of Business at Penn. So you're not the average Joe as far as academics and intelligence. You know, a lot of people, I'm assuming, or I'm, I'm sure, they just don't have the mental resources to say, okay, that's a great idea, but how am I going to do that? You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, most people wouldn't have any idea where to be even begin. Yeah. And so for you, what were some of the first steps you said, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to go out swinging, I'm going to try my best to solve this equation. I got to solve this thing somehow. How did you do that? Because that's not an easy thing for the average Joe out there to say, hey, I can just go find a cure for my own, yeah. you know, whatever. So how, how was that for you? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think that the steps that I took are repeatable and aren't necessarily just to find a cure for yourself, but it could be to do a lot of other things mm -hmm. in life. And so, um, so number one is understand what do we know about this thing? Again, mm -hmm. whether it's Castleman's or it's some mm -hmm. other problem you're facing, mm -hmm. like what do we know about mm -hmm. it? What are the treatments that have been tried? What's, what's known? So one's mm -hmm. what's known. Two how am I going to build the right team to take this thing on? And mm -hmm. so that's connecting with all the physicians, the researchers, the patients that are already out there, connecting with them. And then it's three, with that team, with these smart people, I want to come up with the right plan to fight this thing. So mm -hmm. understand the thing, build the team, and then with the team, come up with the plan to take mm -hmm. this thing on. And so those three steps, again, I think are, are repeatable in other areas. But once we had the right team, we were informed about the disease, we had the right team, and we came up with our plan, we were really intentional about making sure that we understood you know, what was happening in, in patients like me, in our blood, that, that maybe we could target with a drug. And we came up with a, a, a long list of about 20 different studies that we wanted to do. And we had like no, no money at the time, <laughs> but we were ambitious. It was like, look, we might not have any money to do research now, but like we're gonna raise money and we're gonna march through these studies. And we actually have gotten through most of those 20 that we planned you know, from day one. So at this time, you're just to kind of keep it in context, you're, you're still sick because we, yeah. we haven't found the cure yet. Yeah, you're, exactly. you're, you're in that place where you know, or you, you think the reality is there could be an end date here pretty soon. For sure. There, there could be an end date to this. Yep. Yet in that time, while you're in that period, you're beginning to formulate the plan. Yep. Was there ever a time when a doctor or somebody in this world that you're dealing with just kind of said, Dave, I mean, I, I know what you're doing, man, is really noble and it's wonderful yeah. and man, that's great, but it's not going to happen. Hey, man, you know, yeah, I, I don't I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, that's actually the majority of the perspectives <laughs> that I got. Um, I mean, and, and you, I'll, I'll give you one, one in, in particular. So one of the physicians who I work with really closely, um, he, he, was, he basically said exactly what you did. And I said, what do you think the chances are that I'm going to find something out here? And he said, you want the honest answer? I, I said, yeah. He said, he said, one in a million. And, uh, and I started but to- But that's one. I started, to, one. I started to smile because- <laughs> Um, I'm a big fan of the movie Dumb and Dumber. I don't know. I don't know how much you like Dumb and Dumber, but in Dumb and Dumber, when Lloyd Christmas is told that he's got a one in a million chance uh, with Miss Swanson, he says, "So you're saying there's a chance? <laughs> I got a job. I got a so chance. you're saying there's a chance?" And that's what I said to this doctor. I said, "So you're saying there's a chance?" And he's like looking at me like, like "What? <laughs> what?" And I'm like, "Well, it's zero out of a million if I don't do anything. So like, I mean, let's take a one in a million shot. Let's take a swing at this thing." And um, again, I, I didn't think that we would necessarily find something, but I knew that we would definitely not find anything um, if we didn't try. 
So now you're you're uh, you're uh, you're going to begin, and you're attempting, and you've put a, t- a team together, and, and uh, you're, you're at least launching. Okay, yep. now we're we're beginning. Let's figure out how to do this. Um, at what point did you have a moment where something happened where you say that's kind of a breakthrough? Like, okay, we haven't solved it yet, but you know, we, we yep. got we got a little wiggle room in here where maybe something yep. good happened. Were there some of those along oh, the way? Oh, for sure. And unfortunately, some of those were followed with, right. oh, gosh, we didn't yeah. actually find it. We thought we found something. So, no, there were a few of those. And, and actually, a couple times where we got an insight where we're like, I think this drug might be useful for my disease. And I actually talked to my doctor, and they actually put me on that drug, like, very short period of time between the discovery and getting on it. And maybe some early sign that might be working, but then the disease would come roaring back. And I'm like back in the ICU, all my organs shutting down and sort of like I failed myself. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I gave it everything I had. I swung as hard as I could and I didn't do it in time. And I'm not going to survive this one. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and sort of the the feeling of like, you know, failure. I mean, all the stuff that I know you dealt with and your Mm -hmm. players when they Mm -hmm. lost big Mm -hmm. games, when they sort of put everything on the line Mm -hmm. um, and and it didn't didn't turn out. and, and so that happened a few times, but then, um, you know, about three and a half years into this whole journey, um, when I had my last relapse, um, the thing that changed is that I started um, collecting my blood samples every week leading mm-hmm. up to that relapse, mm-hmm. um, because I knew that if I got sick, I wanted to be able to have the samples to do the research on in the mm-hmm. lab. And that's when I had that first sort of like, I guess I'd had a couple failed attempts um, before, but now for and really my third attempt was, I really think that targeting this one part of the immune system could actually really work for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, then I, I talked to my doctor and, and, and he got me on this drug. And uh, I had I had been so sick leading up to this. And, um, you know, within a couple of days of being on this drug, I, I started to feel better. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know whether it was the drug or like sort of a placebo right. effect. Right. Um, but what I knew would be the real test is how long is it going to work for? Because the way mm. Castleman's works is like when it comes, it comes for you full speed and it tries to kill you. And mm-hmm. um, so it was like, okay, I may be feeling better now, but like, let's see if this prevents it a relapse from occurring. And um, and that's just a test of time. Mm. And so you just sort of like every day is like one day longer and you're sort of like, when's this thing going to drop? But you're feeling better during I'm this. I'm feeling better. You're I'm feeling, feeling better. better. And okay. I'm optimistic. <clears throat> but like, when's it going to drop? Right. And uh, And the days have just kept coming by. What would you say, and this will sound trivial, and I don't mean it to be, but what do you, you know, because we all do it, and uh, we, we've all had those points in life where things are good, things are bad. Um, isolation, you're lonely, you're desperate, you're, you're down, you're, you're, you're yeah. moping, you're pouting because this didn't go my way. But um, I would imagine um, you find a way to overcome that. I mean, you've done all that. Yeah. Like, I, You've been there, like you've been to the, to the end, you yeah. know, close. And then you've said, but I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep yeah. finding. I, I tried this one. It didn't work. I'm going to try that one. It didn't work. Yeah. And, and boom, now I got a breakthrough and maybe that one even didn't work. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the average person out there, you know, when we go through these, what well, we all do it, we all do it. Yeah. It's human nature. Um, the resiliency, I think, that you had, because I think a lot of people, Dave, just to be very honest, at some point they just say, you know what? Yeah. Phone it in, man. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to enjoy my last few it's, days. It's good. Go it's good. And I'm going to go. Yeah. But, and not to sound trivial, because you're, you're, what you did is so much different, but you, you say to those, you would say to those people, if somebody was sitting right across the table and they're like, Dave, yeah. man, I'm, man, I'm, 
lost my job, lost my wife, lost everything. I'm in the dumps, and man, I'm I'm ready to phone it all in. What would you say to them? Yeah, I think that um, for me, the things that helped me get through those really low moments mm-hmm. were looking to the future for what it was that if I were to get through this, I'm not mm-hmm. saying I'm going to, but mm-hmm. if I were to, what would that thing be that I would be chasing after? Mm. So, you know, what is that thing that if I can get through this thing that I would go after? So that's one thing you got to have a vision for the future. You got to mm-hmm. have that thing you're chasing. Mm-hmm. Once that thing that you're chasing is gone, you're done. Mm-hmm. So one, the vision for the future Two, you got to have the people by your side mm-hmm. that, you, that, you know, you would do anything, you know, to be, to be with. So thinking about Caitlin, I'm thinking about Gina and Lisa mm. and my dad, thinking about my, my best friend, Ben, physically by my side. Like I needed them like with me. I mean, basically like, mm. you know, holding me up when I didn't have the strength myself. And then the third is that you gotta take it like it's a cliche, but you gotta take it one day at a time or maybe mm. even one hour at a time. Right. Cause there were points where, yeah, I was at my lowest and it was like, there's no way, if someone told me during a lot of these low points that, hey David, it's actually gonna get worse from this and it's actually gonna get worse for like months. Mm. I don't think I would have had the strength right. to fight right. through it. I mean, I, I just I just don't think I would have, but mm. because I had this vision for the future, because I had my my people at my side and because I was really thinking about it hour to hour, like I can make it for the next hour. All right, I can make mm. it for the next hour. Mm. That helped me get through it. And I think that again, I think that is transferable regardless whether mm. it's a disease or it's mm. a low point because you're getting a divorce or you lost your job or whatever that low mm. point might be. Mm. Um, I, think that, I think you need those three things. I also, to, uh, tell me if you would agree with this, because I think this kind of applies, or maybe it does, but I think for me it always has. And, and I've been involved in sports my whole life. Co- I played basketball, coached yep. basketball, you know, coached at a high level, all those kind of things. But sports, they teach you so much. And oh, it's yeah. not just how to throw a football or how totally. to correctly shoot a foul shot. I mean, that was, all that's great, the fundamentals of the game. But in those moments where... You know, and for you, growing up, you're on the sidelines as a little kid watching yep. NC State football a lot, NC State yep. basketball, but you're there. Your dad's on the sidelines as a, as a physician. But then you're playing, even high school football and college football, those long summer days, I don't want to yeah. lift anymore. I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to do that one more sprint. I, I could really coast on this last one. I really don't want to give it my all. But something about sports teaches you, yes. and I'm not saying that's everything for you, but Huge did that it. play – a role in kind of your resiliency and your there's something about I'm going to I'm going to get up off the ground here and I'm I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm I'm not giving in. I'm just not doing that. Do you think some of that 100%. for you? 100%. Okay. I think if I didn't grow up playing football, I don't think that I I, I fight through those yeah. those low points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't. I think that in football and in many other sports like they try to break you on mm-hmm. on the practice field. They try to break mm-hmm. you in on mm-hmm. during the game. Like you're literally mm-hmm. constantly trying to be broken. Um, but uh, but you're constantly trying to you know rise back up, get up off the dirt, mm-hmm. keep fighting. And so um, and then and then you'll like this. Uh, so at Georgetown, our motto, our, my first two years, um, we would have E equals R on our shirt. Effort equals results. Mm-hmm. Well, we put in a lot of effort and we didn't give very good results. Okay, so that, that equation was not right. It was like lots of effort, very little results. But, but it sort of it, it it really helped me to understand like you got to keep grinding and you might not get what you want, right? But just keep grinding. Like you know, things might not be doing going so great. Keep grinding. <laughs> E equals R, but results for you actually translated to a different type of result. You're right. It may not have been the result on the scoreboard. You're right. But it was results that you learned. You know, when I was at UCLA many years ago and I had the great honor of getting to know John Wooden, I always remember 
And it, when I first heard him say this the first time, it was kind of like, eh, whatever. Sounds kind of cool. Sounds great. Yep. But, you know, he always used to say the mental is to the physical is four is to one. Okay. And I would wow. say that to my team all the time. You know, guys, the mental is to the physical is four is to one. And so yep. much of what we learn in sports, I learned it as a young guy growing up. I wanted to be a college basketball player, and I had yep. these goals, and I wanted to be the number one player in the state, and I wanted to be a Division one player, and I wanted to be drafted in the NBA and all those things. Yep. Was the mental part, the, the mental toughness that you have to have to get really good. Some guys are born with just amazing talent, and yep. that, that's, that's the exception. Yep. But the majority are people that you had to learn how to be mentally tougher I'm going to beat my circumstances every day. I'm just going to yep. beat it. I will win against yep. my circumstances. My yep. own mind is not going to beat me. Yep. I'm beating it. Yep. I'm going to do it. And so for you, I, I know there had to have been all those times as an athlete in the weight room, on the practice field, yep. wherever you were, at the, and as tired as you were, and I got to get up in the morning, and I got to do it again, and I don't want to, and my body hurts. But what you're really saying to yourself is my circumstances, they're just not going to beat me. Yep. And that, that had to just carry over. It did. Here you are now in the, the, the battle, truthfully. For my life. For your yep. life. And the, the, the lessons you learned, you know, probably, I'm assuming, really began to say, okay, here we go. I'm going to draw back because I'm not, yep. not going to roll over. I'm not giving into this thing. I agree. And so it's, it's both the skills and, and I guess the experience of continuing to fight and mm -hmm. grind even mm -hmm. when the circumstances were tough. It also was a lot around teamwork, right? Because mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, the second thing of those three mm -hmm. things I mentioned was around building yep. the right team. Mm -hmm. And you learn a lot about team building from mm -hmm. any sport. I think in particular, football is mm -hmm. one of these sports where like in life, all of us have a very different role, right? You know, we're not all taking the shot on goal, right? right. We're all doing a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think that there were a lot of things I learned in the field just in terms of how to be a leader, how to work with other people that all of a sudden now I'm like, you know, trying to march down the field to try to find a drug that's right. going to save my life. And, and I got to bring all those things in, into play that I learned in the field. So many lessons. So uh, switching gears a little bit, and I, I think this is why, and, and uh, you know, they're they're beginning to to work on uh, a movie about your life right. uh, here in Hollywood. Uh, Wendy Feinerman uh, produced Forrest Gump, uh, Small World. Her father was uh, our team orthopedic surgeon when I was at UCLA, and so I, I know her dad. It's amazing how small a world it is. But um, part of the story, which I think is attractive for Hollywood, but forget Hollywood right now, is kind of you explaining a little bit the love story between you and your wife. because. Yep. As I read the book, and then I've gotten to know Caitlin, who, who is now your wife, and her family, her parents, and gotten to know your two children who are young but just wonderful. But there was part of it where she's pursuing a little bit, and, and she's wanting it, but you're basically feeling like, look, I'm dying, yep. and I really don't want, I'm not going to put you through this. Yep. And you kind of pushed her away a few times. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you're going to get me in trouble with Caitlin when she listens to this spot. It's going to bring back all these bad memories from Caitlin. We love Caitlin. Yeah. <laughs> the no. end result is the true, well, the true love I'll, I'll story. Tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I'll also tell you um, her perspective on things. So um, you're right. So we had dated for almost three years before I got sick. And then just a few months before I got sick, we decided to break up and take a break. And um uh, you know, I was busy in medical school and she was finishing up undergrad and, uh, and then I got deathly ill. And so she wanted to come visit me and, and I, I knew I was dying. I mean, I, right. I like, I knew, I, I knew yeah. I was looking at my blood test. I, I knew this was it. And it was like, 
Um, I didn't want her to see me right before I passed. Mm. I, I didn't look like myself. I, I didn't feel like I couldn't really speak very clearly because I was so confused. And, and, you know, I just lost my mom shortly before that. And I had a lot of memories sort of burned in my mind of my mom when she was sick. And I was, you know, a young 25 year old. I think I, I mentioned this earlier. I just I just set the Virginia State bench pressing <laughs> record. I was in such good shape. And all of a sudden, like, you know, so I probably cared about, you know, how I looked externally and all of a sudden now I've got 70 pounds of fluid and I'm literally dying. And so I didn't want her to see me and remember me the way I looked. Now, I don't care you know, what I look like or, or what she thinks I look like. But, but at the time I did care about how I looked and I cared about that being her final memory. Um, and so I, I had my sisters tell her, you know, you can't come up and see me. Like they right. stopped her in the hospital. Right. Right. Um, Gino actually was the one who, who went down and, and she's my enforcer. You know? <laughs> so, and then, I'm learning. Yeah, that's right. And then, um, and then the same thing happened at Duke when I was hospitalized a couple months later. Again, she came to Duke and again, you know, you can't, can't see mm. Dave. And so, um, and the third time it was, you know, don't even fly out to Little Rock, which is where I was hospitalized at the time. And so, um, but Caitlin kept coming back. Um, you know, she's resilient too. And uh, she kept coming back. And um, and as, as I would bounce back from these things and I think, well, maybe I could be okay. Like maybe I could have a future. And I started getting excited about maybe mm -hmm. it's a future with her. And so um, she came out of North Carolina and we, we, we connected and, and, and she didn't hold any sort of grudge. She wasn't upset about the getting pushed away. And, 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 you know, we started dating again. And, um, and now at the time, and you've seen the pictures in the book, mm. you know, I'm bald from the chemotherapy. I got a belly that looks like I'm nine months pregnant. And, and Caitlin's sitting there looking at me being like, you know, I want to start dating you again. Ugh. And I'm like, I'm like, are you sure? And she's like looking at me like offended that I'm like even asking her that. Um, but, you know, we start dating again. And the, the second side of the story is that so I'm writing this book and um, and having to dig back into some tough memories. Right. right. Um, you know, my Saturdays, I'm like crawling or crying in, in the room while I'm writing this thing. And and I'm asking Kayla, I'm like, you know, tell me a little about this. And, and she's like, well, you know, I thought that it was your sisters who didn't want me to come to the room. They sort of like took the they made it seem not that Dave doesn't want you to see him. It's that we don't think you took should the bullet see him. for you. They took the bullet for me. So, <laughs> so she was like always upset with them. Like, why won't they let me, you know, come see, come him. see him. Right. And I think to myself, like, I don't know what Caitlin would have done. Maybe if she knew the whole story, maybe, maybe this whole story is different and maybe she's not sticking around the way that she did. <laughs> it's what, what's, uh, I have found to be, um, really cool is that in getting getting to know Caitlin a little bit is that uh, she just has such a pure heart because we all know the reality. I mean, we can you can yep. say it all the way different ways you want to say it. Most people, they wouldn't stick around. They're running the other way. They're, they're gone. They're yeah. gone. They, this is not something I want to take on totally in my life. And especially and, if he's the one pushing you away. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you have children and, you know, you have a life. Yep. And so the uncertainty of, you know, how long does the drugs last? Yes. And, you know, so for her to, I can see why, well, number one, they're just reality. It's, it's, she, she's amazing. And I, I've enjoyed getting to know her and her parents. And she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. But you can also see why, like even somebody like Wendy Fireman in Hollywood, yeah. there's an element to your story, too, that I'm sure Hollywood likes as well, yeah. the love story part of it. But it's real. It's, yeah. it's not fake. It's not phony. She could have at any time just said, you know what? You know, there's a lot of guys out there, yeah. and you know what? I know Dave's a great guy and all that, but mm, I just don't know that I want to take that thing on. It's too much for me. She could have done that. And, and I think knew. that would have been the, the 
typical, normal, appropriate Most thing to people. do, right? I mean, it's sort of like the the almost the sane thing to do. Mm-hmm. The insane thing, right. I think, is to say to stay. I'm gonna stay. I'm, I'm and basically, staying. I'm gonna yeah, I'm staying. I'm gonna keep doing this thing. And she was staying when you were still bald and fat and yeah. you know this and that and fluid all over you and just yeah. you know you're laying there in the bed. I mean, it's it's different if you're out walking around totally. and you kind of okay, he's on the road to recovery. So no. it, it's an amazing thing. So so tell me a little bit too now about. Um, because I, I found it interesting, and uh, you and I have talked about this. In 1995, I coached at UCLA. We win the national championship. And yep. uh, first weekend in April and May, they take us to the White House, and Bill Clinton's the president, and uh, we got our team there in UCLA. And, you know, we, we do the jersey ceremony that, you know, every team does. And yep. and then we go down the hall, and we go into a room, and there's – there's uh, uh, Bill Clinton, and, uh, you know, I was always kind of a little bit like, mm, I don't know about this guy, you know, even though he's from Arkansas, he's kind of from the South, I kind of like him, but I don't really know about him. <laughs> and uh, within about 15 minutes, he had the room, like, yeah. it, it blew me away. Like He was so genuine, authentic, and down to earth that our group, you know, regardless of your political position, yep. you just, all of a sudden, it's like, man, I like this dude, like, I'm down for him. Like, yep. Man, what One a guy, like... And so you have a relationship now with uh, Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea. And uh, kind of tell me a little bit about how that came about, what happened, how does this get going, and then, and then also a little bit about once you got to know them, then what's been happening with the Clinton uh, Global Initiative, those type things. So tell me about how you sure. first met him. How, how did it come about? So I got to take you all the way back to, uh, <laughs> to, to March 31st of 2021. So day before April Fool's Day, um, I get this phone call from an un, unmarked number. It says, hi, David, uh, I've got, I work for President Clinton and I got him on the other line. You know, can, can I pass him through to you? And I'm sort of like, what? Like <laughs> it's the day before April Fool's Day, and it's like this like unmarked number from some guy who's acting sort of you know really you know really sketchy. And so I'm like, sure, you know, put him through. I don't. Okay. So and then and then it's David. This is real quick. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, I think it's him, but it's such he's got such like an exaggerated accent, right? You know, it's just, it's a unique. You know, no one talks like right. President Clinton, right? Um, and so it takes me like 15 minutes on the phone with him, him telling me stories and like jumping right into things before I'm like, wow, this really is President Clinton. <laughs> and so the reason he called is because he had read Chasing My Cure. He reads like 50 books a year. Um, and uh, he read Chasing My Cure. And uh, and the story really resonated with him for, for a number of reasons. So uh-huh. one, we both went to Georgetown. We both went to Oxford for grad school. He loves college football. He was in the band. He loves sports. He, he loves He's sports. A sports guy. Well, he was in the band at Georgetown, so he right. watched every football game at Georgetown. Um, and he could. He was like on the phone telling me about his favorite plays and this great nose guard for like Colgate <laughs> from like. And I'm like, what? Um, so he. So we we bonded on that. We also bonded on um, our love for Little Rock, Arkansas. I, I spent a lot of time in the hospital in Little Rock, and and that, my life was saved there a number of times. Um, and then also. Um, you know, he invested a lot of time and effort and, and, and dollars, frankly, when he was a president into health initiatives, into medical mm-hmm. research, mm-hmm. working towards cures. And he's on the call with me and he's like, David, are you telling me that there are drugs that are in the pharmacy that could save more lives than they're currently being saved because mm-hmm. no one is researching them? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, we haven't talked about this too much, but I'm alive because of a drug that wasn't made for my disease. I discovered that a drug made for kidney cancer and for organ transplantation, I thought it could work for Castleman's. That's that third drug mm-hmm. that we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. And I tested it on myself and it's now been over nine years. Mm-hmm. I'm doing great on this drug. Mm-hmm. 
it wasn't made for me. I'm, I'm not, I'm not really supposed to be here because this mm -hmm. drug wasn't made for me, right. you know? And so he, he was really blown away by that idea. And, um, and he's, and we spoke for about an hour that first time. And he said, you know, David, what's your dream? Like, what are you working mm. towards? And I said, my dream is to do what I did for myself, but for millions of people around mm. the world. And that's to find drugs that are already on the pharmacy shelf and to see if they could save their, their lives now, not mm. like 10 years from now or mm. 50 years from now, now. Mm. And, um, and he said, well, I think you should do that. And when you do that, just know you'll have my full support. I want you to announce it from the Clinton Global Initiative when we relaunch it. I want you to know that like, I'll go out on the road with you and fundraise, like I'll do whatever you need to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, I hung up um, from that phone call and, and did a lot of reflecting. And it was like, I mean, I hadn't really sort of even told anyone what my dream mm -hmm. was, but he's sort of poking and prodding and, and that's how I how I, I shared it. But um, But once I shared it with him, it was sort of like, I think I need to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but it did take a while. It took almost a full year before I really, mm -hmm. and actually he would call every couple of months. I actually met up with him in, in Orlando and he, he pushed me again. He said, are you doing this? He mm -hmm. said, I think you need to do it. Are you gonna do it? Um, and, and that sort of pushed me over the edge and, and I haven't turned back since. So the, the, uh, we've talked a lot about you know, chasing your cure, ch the book Chasing My Cure, which you, you, you personally had uh, with Castleman's and, and you discovered the cure, but like you just mentioned, so we can talk a little bit more, so, uh, more about that so people understand. So now, um, help me if I, if I say this correctly, yeah. it, it, it appears like you know, your life mission now is to find those drugs and I, I tell people all this all the time. I, I tell yeah. people about your story. We'll Thanks. get to talking about it. And, you know, I say, you know, you go in a, into a pharmacy and you walk down and you look over there and there's a million bottles of pills up yep. on the wall. They're, they're everywhere. We see it every time you go to the pharmacy. Yep. And uh, there's one of those on the shelf that is made for one disease or one whatever somebody needs, symptom. Yep but that can also be effective for something completely different. So when I tell yep. people about repurposing already existing drugs, it's almost like people go, oh, wow, wow. I can never thought about that, you know, which a lot yes. of people don't. They really don't, totally. you know, don't think about it. And so now kind of that whole journey, because uh, there's gotta be a lot of possibilities that yep. maybe no one's ever really dug into and researched. That's exactly right. And so I'll, I'll share a couple examples um, that the, the listeners might, might uh, immediately connect with. So one of them is a drug called thalidomide, um, which was made for leprosy initially. And then shortly thereafter was figured out to be effective for lymphoma. And I mean, if you can't think about two diseases that are more different than mm -hmm. like a leprosy where your limbs are falling off because of some horrible infectious agent versus lymphoma, cancer of your immune cells, mm -hmm. But what shares an underlying basis is how this drug works. It hits this one part of the immune system that is important for both. And so mm -hmm. the point being is that though two diseases may appear very different, mm -hmm. the underlying problem may be the same. And so another example is Viagra. We all mm -hmm. know the mm -hmm. typical use for Viagra. Mm -hmm. You know, it's actually also a life-saving mm -hmm. drug for a, a children's lung disease. Mm. So there are kids who were dying by the time they were 10 or 11 years old before. Now they get low-dose Viagra and they live full lives. Oh. It's incredible. Wow. And so so between my experience where I found this drug for myself and then these, these sort of experiences that happen very serendipitously, like there's never been a system to figure out what are the other uses for these drugs. It's just like sort of doctors try random things here and there. Some things stick, some things don't. 
Um, and then through my center at Penn, so I, I got better. I joined the faculty at Penn and built this center. We've now done this 16 times, mm. including the drug saved my life, where we mm. found a drug that could be useful in a different disease than the one mm. that it was intended for. Mm. And we're only looking at inflammatory immune disorders. And so I'm sitting here, and of course, you know, when I talk to President Clinton, it's like, that's just what we did for this small group of diseases. But like, what if we open the lens? Mm -hmm. And so, and that's what we've done with this new nonprofit, Every Cure. So I ended up giving mm -hmm. President Clinton a call and mm -hmm. saying, I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to start a, this nonprofit. It's going to be focused on unlocking the full potential of approved drugs. So if it's in your CVS and it's approved for one disease, I'm going to figure out what the mm. other diseases are that it could work for. And now the reason that this hasn't been done until now, and the thing that really fired up President Clinton and also fires me up, is that the reason this doesn't happen is that if you find a new use for an old off-patent drug, no one's making any money off right. of it. Because these 80% of all drugs that are approved by the FDA are off patent. And right. so like generic right. companies are making up, right. there's, there's no money. And so, but so I hear 80% of drugs are generic and I say, holy crap, that means that they're inexpensive, they're accessible all over the world. All we have to do is find a new disease right. for them and you can just save millions of lives for mm -hmm. like no money. Mm -hmm. But our system says, yeah, but you're not gonna make any money. And mm -hmm. so let's go develop a new drug, one right. disease at a time. And right. so that's where it's like, we got to do this. Mm -hmm. um, the system's broken in this way where we, you know, one drug, one disease, one billion dollars, one decade. That's like, mm -hmm. that's how our mm -hmm. system works. Mm -hmm. And then, hey, then you make 10 billion on the other side. Right. So like, right. that's how the system <clears throat> works. But what I'm saying is how about we do one drug, 10 diseases, you know, for in one year, mm -hmm. right? And, and sort of change the math and, and save a lot of lives. You know, we were we were in uh, Trinidad. Uh, your parents both grew up there, and we were sitting there. And we were actually talking about this is when you were getting ready to launch yeah. the name, which is an amazing organization. You get a lot of credit every, for this, by no, the way. Every cure. I can't remember, but you had a different name. Exponential but, cures, and you was, said I was I was all in on exponential cures, I'm, I'm and you not, told me no. And I I'm get not all trying. The I'm not trying to down my degree from Alabama, but I remember saying I'm from Alabama, man. I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you I, that's too, big, that's you too big a word for me. We got to dummy that down for us. Yes, but I love the name Every Cure because there potentially is a cure for everything. We don't yes. know yet, and so you you did an amazing job with that and. I also remember where we were talking and we were sitting there at, in Trinidad and we, and we were talking about it and you, you know, I, I asked the question, I think, which a lot of people might ask that says, ah, these pharmaceutical companies, you know, they suck, you know, they, yeah. they, they should be doing this. And your answer was kind of like, well, you know, their business, you know, and, and so kind of your thought on that, because I, I think a lot yeah. of people's first reaction would be that like, yeah. what are our pharmaceutical? They, do they not want to do this too? Why aren't they doing this? And exactly, I think it's a problem with our system. So I think that for every one of these drug companies, these pharmaceutical companies, I think that the fact that they've got any one of these drugs developed and approved is amazing. I think we should be, because you can't repurpose drugs if you don't got drugs to right. repurpose, right? right so right. first off, I actually am very thankful for what drug companies have done to develop 3,000 drugs for right. 3,000 diseases. So I'm, I'm very happy for that. And then I realize in the system that we're in, there's just no incentives for them to figure out new uses for their old drugs. Like they're just, they're actually gonna spend more money on clinical trials than they're gonna make off those drugs. And so like, 
you don't need to have a business degree to know that like you shouldn't do things that right. are going to cost more than you're going to make back. Mm -hmm. At least in our system, you shouldn't. Well, if I'm on a board of trustees at one of those com the companies, I'm saying we don't really need to do that because yes. it's really not making us any money. And now, you, there's a moral part, but eh, we, you know. yeah, you're right. I mean, these are for-profit companies. If you're on a board and you actually do something like that, you're actually going against your responsibility to your shareholders. You're mm -hmm. doing something that's bad for their bottom line, which is actually like illegal. Right. You can't do that. Right. So. I think in our system, I understand why companies aren't repurposing drugs. It's mm -hmm. not because they're evil and they're like, we're going to hold off on this cure because like mm -hmm. we don't want to pursue it. It's it's actually it's going to cost us more to do the studies than we're going to make back in profit. And so like you know, someone else can find a treatment for that right. disease. Like you know, no no company has an obligation where they like have to. I think, again, there's a moral obligation here, but I don't have a problem um, in, or I don't think that pharma is evil for not doing this. Mm -hmm. I just think that our system has has made a mistake by not solving this sooner. Like, mm -hmm. I think that like FDA, NIH, the federal government, some nonprofit somewhere, someone should have come by earlier than than David Fagan mom mm -hmm. with every cure. Mm -hmm. I, I believe it should have happened yeah. sooner, but, you know, there's no better time than now, right? And, I, and sometimes, I, not to get off track, but I look at our government sometimes and we spend money sometimes. We, we, we cough up Crazy some amounts. billion here and a billion there and we can find a billion. And I look at what you're doing and uh, I think even Bill Clinton mentioned that at the Clinton uh, yep. Global Initiative, like, you know, almost kind of a little bit like, why aren't we putting more money here? Yep. And, and, you know, th this is much more noble and important and... Not the other things aren't. There, there are a lot yep. of amazing things that our government that does for us. But yep. you would just you're kind of waiting to say, let's go right here. Let, let's get this done. I, I mean, th this is th this is it. It's tangible. And, and the thing is, if you invest, let's say you invest a billion dollars into like a future technology for drugs, you're going to see a return on that like 10, 20, 30, 40 years from mm -hmm. now. You put a fraction of that into drugs that are on the pharmacy shelf. They're there. All you have to do is just make the connection, and then they're in people's bodies Boom. like in weeks. I mean, we get we've gotten drugs into patients within weeks of discoveries, mm -hmm. and so so it's about impact, but it's also about urgency of impact. And I can tell you, most people that are sick with mm -hmm. diseases, we want solutions now. We right. don't want solutions a decade right. from right. now. Right. So, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think the good news is is that I've seen a real shift within members of the US government to, to being open to this idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think before there was sort of this concept with like, yeah, you know, you might be able to do that for yourself, for your disease, for a small number of diseases, but like the technology doesn't really exist to do this, all diseases, mm -hmm. all drugs. Mm -hmm. But with the advent of artificial intelligence and what we've all witnessed over the last few months, that AI can do miraculous things, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden you can basically say like, yeah, I could do it for one disease and one drug, but we can build an algorithm that basically thinks about the way I thought about one disease, one drug across all diseases, mm. all drugs. And when we first ran the algorithm um, about six months ago, um, it was on track to take 100 days to run because it's such a complicated algorithm mm. and so much data. We've refined it. The next time it was eight days, and now we're down to one day. And mm. that's just because the technology and the science advances it quickly. 100 days down to one day to run this thing. And so it's like... We are at this incredible moment in time where the system is sort of open to this idea that drugs would be repurposed. The technology is there mm -hmm. to make this happen. And then you've got a team that I have the honor of being a part of that is like all in on this. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you have that sort of formula, I think we're going to make some major progress. I don't think there's any doubt. So, Dave, I, I, obviously I'm extremely proud of you. I think what you're doing is 
off the charts. It's, it's you know, it's sometimes for me, it's like indescribable. When I describe it to other people, I don't, I don't feel like I do it enough justice when I'm trying to explain exactly, um, you know, what your real goals and motives and, you know, where your intent is. Cause I think it's as pure as anything there ever is. And I'm proud of you. And, um, you know, one thing I always do, uh, you know, on our show and I, I've enjoyed these podcasts. I love them cause there's so much to learn from everybody. And I think with you, I think there's so much people can learn and there, there's always something to pull from, you know, yep. to, to learn. But you and I've, I've asked you this question before, so you're, you're, you've got a little bit of a head start, but I've asked a lot of guys this. It's been interesting, too, because, um, you know, the question always comes down to, like, with your own children, you got two beautiful, wonderful uh, young people that, uh, you know, just adore you and, and Caitlin and, and everybody around them. But, and, and I have five children who are now a little bit old. They're grown. You know, they're, they're young adults. But I always ask the question, if you could breathe and you could just gift, if you could just gift certain characteristics into your children and you said man if i could just give you this if you mm -hmm. if you end up with this characteristic i'll just be as happy as i can be as a dad you know as you become an adult one day um what would some of those be for you what what comes to your mind um in that regard yeah it's such an important question and and uh, I've just loved Mark uh, over these last few years, getting to know you, and uh, you're the quintessential coach, father, friend. It just, it's, it's. I love it. You're, you know, you're, you're a coach at heart, and it, and it comes out in the way that you interact with with all of us, whether we're, you know, your kids, whether you're your 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 players, or or just you know future brother-in-law. So I, I I love that about you. Um, so for for my kids, um, I think the three things come to mind. So um, number one. Is kindness. I think that um, it's just. I think that you, you got to give the world kindness, and I think. It, and and I, I love that. I see my, my kids have that in their heart. Two. I think you got to be honest, and I think that um, honesty takes you a really long way in, in this world. And then three is hardworking, and I think that the, the hardworking piece. Obviously, I learned a lot from the football field, um, but definitely learned that from this journey. Um, these drugs, you know, they didn't they didn't discover themselves, and they uh, and you know this work with this new nonprofit, Every Cure, um, right in the book. These these things um, they came about from just grinding, and uh, and so I think yeah, if my, if my kids end up being kind, honest, and, and hardworking, I'll be happy. Those are amazing characteristics, and it's interesting when I ask that question is because we all draw from all of our own experiences in life. Yeah, we all draw from that, and uh, one thing I've learned uh, with your family. Um, is those characteristics, especially the first two, um, if from what I've learned, those would be words that everybody that knew your mother, that's yeah. what they would say about your mom. You're right. And I think a lot of these things, you know, I, I'm envisioning how I want my kids to be thinking about, you know, how I was raised, who raised me, you know, me and, and Gene and Lisa, we just, you know, we, we think the world about our mom. I mean, she was, she, and, and you know, she was that amazing. I mean, she, she really was. I, I wish you could have gotten a chance to meet her, but I will tell you the more time you spend around, around G and Lise and me, I think you'll, you'll, you'll get a chance to know her through us. Well, and, and in my trip down to Trinidad and, uh, and, uh, your mother was one of, uh, well, I think five, five yep. and, uh, the other four, her four siblings, uh, Charlie, Ian, Trish, and, um, Jeannie, Jeannie, um, laying around in the pool or sitting on the boat or talking. And as they all got to talk about your mother, those were all the things they talked about too. So it's, uh, it's real and, uh, it's wonderful. So anyway, we, we could talk for hours. You and I talk all the time anyway, but, uh, man, I appreciate you, uh, being on the front row podcast as I get this thing going. 
and I'm having fun. But man, today was uh, is special, yeah. and uh, I just want to say thank you for no, being on. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been awesome. All right, thank you.